Hello, and you're listening to the Stay Whole podcast. I'm Sanjay, your host. My aim is to help you demystify the world of health and wellness using evidence-based lifestyle interventions that will enable you to live happier, healthier, and more productive lives. This revolves around three key principles, eat, live, and move. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Charlotte Marion, who is a consultant psychiatrist in the NHS and a certified lifestyle medicine physician with a particular interest in neuroscience. She's also chair of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine Mental Health Special Interest Group. Charlotte likes to inspire and empower her patients to make small changes to their lifestyle habits to improve their physical and mental health and reduce the burden of medication side effects. In this episode, we talk about defining mental health, stress and psychosis, how the media has influenced our beliefs about mental health problems, the difference between psychiatry and psychology, fight, flight or freeze stress response and how we can look after our own mental health through lifestyle changes that are within our control. Charlotte was an absolute pleasure to speak to and I for one learned a great deal from this conversation and I hope you do too. Please check the show notes for a list of self-help resources that Charlotte has been very kind to share. The views in this episode are Charlotte's personal opinions and do not reflect those of her employer or any other organisations that she is associated with. Charlotte, uh, thank you very much for joining me on the Stay Whole podcast this morning. Uh, appreciate your, your time and, and you being here. Um, as always, I really like to to hear a, a bit about a bit of background about someone and, and what their story is. So what, what would be great is for the audience if you could just let us know who you are, introduce yourself, give us a little bit of background and, and, uh, and what you're doing now, please. That'd be great. Yes, certainly. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk with you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm Charlotte. I'm a consultant NHS psychiatrist. And a bit about my background. Um, well, I work in um, early intervention in psychosis, which is a very interesting area of mental health care. Um, we look after people suffering from their first episode of a psychotic illness. And it's very, very rewarding, very challenging and stimulating. And we have some really great results with our patients, which is, is lovely to see. That's great. Now your uh, your your website and your some your social media handles. Uh, you've you've used the name the lifestyle psychiatrist. Um, how did you come up with this name, or, or why 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 is this name uh, is, is something that you, you you arrived at? Yeah, well, one of my other interests is lifestyle medicine. Um, you know, I've worked in medicine since two thousand and four when I graduated, and over the years I've sometimes felt dissatisfied by by medical treatment and medical care um which can often feel like patching people up and moving them on you know we we tend to treat symptoms of disease or symptoms that people are suffering from but not often getting to the root cause of why they have those symptoms um and lifestyle medicine is really about addressing the root cause so the analogy that the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine use is a dripping tap and conventional medicine is often mopping up the floor. So continuously just mopping up that puddle of water, whereas lifestyle medicine is turning off the tap, addressing the root cause of disease. Um, and so I really like the model. And also it's 100% evidence-based. So um, looking at the evidence base for intensive lifestyle interventions for things like diabetes, heart disease, but also mental health problems as well. Um, you know, we've got a what, what people are calling an epidemic of mental illness these days. And a lot of that is based in the way modern society is, you know, problems with too much stress, um, not enough focus on sleep, on well-being, um, too much um, loneliness, isolation, all of those sort of things that can contribute to poor mental health. So I'm really interested in how lifestyle medicine and lifestyle psychiatry, which is a growing field, can help to improve population mental health and sort of bridge the gap between public health and conventional medicine. Um, and also, you know, in psychiatry, we have patients with um, quite severe mental illness and treatment for that is often medication that has a lot of side effects. For example, in, in the area I work in, we prescribe antipsychotic medications. These are very effective and they help people who are suffering from psychosis, 
but they do have a range of side effects which are very um very unfortunate for physical health they increase people's cardio metabolic risk so with side effects include things like increased appetite weight gain which can be a lot of weight gain increasing risk of type 2 diabetes or what we might call the metabolic syndrome and increasing people's risk of cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease and this is a tragedy because people with psychotic illnesses or severe mental illnesses um you know they have um, um, a much higher rate of physical comorbidity anyway. And then we're prescribing medication that increases the risk for their physical health. So I think that lifestyle medicine is something that can really help to address this. People with schizophrenia, for example, uh, tend, they die 10 to 20 years younger than the general population. And the majority of that is caused by cardiometabolic disease. So I think we've got a real um, need to address these risk factors and lifestyle medicine can help with that. So that's in, in short how I came up with, with the term the lifestyle psychiatrist to try and really promote and inspire people to make small changes to their lifestyle that can revolutionize their health, but also to try to influence the way that psychiatry is practiced in the UK. Um, so that, that, that in a nutshell, really. That's fascinating because um, when when we think when I think of lifestyle medicine and you know I, I guess the work that I do with the diabetes prevention program is is a is a, a form of prescription of lifestyle medicine. Um, yeah, we do think of of course you know food. We think of movement. We think of you know stress. We think of love and connection and all these things. Um, and it, maybe we haven't applied it in in the, in the sense of in in terms of mental illness as well. Now, um, what's what's what. Something you said there about the medication, I had no idea of that these medications are causing these, these, these long-term complications in these patients. I mean, is it, if we know this, that these medications are responsible for these uh, complications, is it the case that the, I guess, the, the treatment, the, the way the medications treat the, the, the illness is... <laughs> I I'm trying to understand is is the trade off well it's worth it because it's treating the psychosis but there are these pretty nasty side effects so we'll just continue I mean is there is part of the lifestyle psychiatrist role like for example in diabetes one of the one of the goals is to try and reduce medication so I guess is that is there a similar play here with 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 psychosis and psychiatry Yes, exactly. You know, a lot of what we do in medicine is is weighing up risk and benefit and there are risks of treating the illness and there are risks of not treating it as well um so psychosis psychotic illnesses um which are on a spectrum and schizophrenia which which lots of people will have heard of but may not understand um they have very very devastating symptoms that impact on people's quality of life and social functioning in a really terrible way so treating with medication is essential really for for people to live a, a good quality of life and I see that happening in my work you know we help people reduce their psychotic symptoms dramatically and they can you know uh, access access the community they can get back into education employment improve their functioning and live a good quality life so the medication works it's effective and the side effects are something that we monitor closely for so in our work, we do regular physical health checks, we do regular blood tests, we look at their heart tracing, the ECG at least once a year, and we look for things like weight gain, blood pressure, um, HbA1c, which is a, a, a marker of um, glucose uh, control. Um, so we monitor carefully and we do give lifestyle advice and, and that kind of thing to help people manage the increased appetite and the weight gain, but it still happens. And, you know, there are programs that are on offer. For example, my service runs a 12-week nutrition and exercise program. Um, people go in and they meet other people suffering from, from mental illness. They learn how to look after themselves in terms of their diet, um, and they get to try various different kinds of exercise and physical activity as well. And my service also runs a walking group. So there are things that we do to help manage that. And we liaise closely with people's GP. So if we notice, for example, that someone's got high cholesterol, we'll liaise with the GP and they'll often be prescribed a statin. Or if they're um, developing metabolic syndrome or diabetes, they might be prescribed metformin. Um, but 
I feel quite strongly that prescribing more medications to counteract the side effects of the medication that's causing the problem isn't always the right approach. And I'm really keen to promote the the lifestyle interventions that can help reduce those comorbidities um, without needing to resort to other medications that have other side effects. Yeah, it's a vicious circle, isn't it? It almost becomes this just, yeah, it's medication after medication. So um, I definitely want to get into, you know, these lifestyle interventions uh, with you in today's discussion. But before we get to that, there's a lot of a lot of terms that we're talking <laughs> about, which may be quite confusing Absolutely. to people. So I wanted to just sort of start demystifying some things and, and, and also for my benefit as well, because um, people often confuse, confuse the terms uh, psychiatry and psychology. Um, would you be able to explain the difference for people, please? Yes, certainly. This is a really common question. And it's interesting. So there's quite a lot of overlap between what we do, but they're also distinct and different roles, and particularly from from our training background. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor um, with a special training in care of mental illness or patients with mental illness. Um, So my background is I completed six years at medical school in London. I graduated with um, MBBS, which is a a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery. Um, Whilst I was at medical school, I also completed an intercalated BSc degree in neuroscience. So I've got an honours degree in neuroscience. And um, the MBBS enables a doctor newly qualified to carry on in any branch of medicine, you know, so I could have become a a GP or a cardiologist or a surgeon. um, But I chose to specialize in psychiatry because it's so fascinating. Um, So that's the the training of a psychiatrist. And then, you know, upon graduating, you do a couple of years of of general medicine, general surgery, different specialties, pediatrics, A&E, and then you can start to specialize as a psychiatrist. And the training to become a consultant takes on average six years post-graduation. Then for a psychologist, their background is different. They'll have done a psychology degree, which may be a master's level. um, And then, well, there are very many different kinds of psychologists too, which complicates things, you know, health psychologists, educational psychologists, clinical psychologists, counseling psychologists. Um, But the psychologists I work with in my service, they're called doctor as well, but they're not medical doctors, but they have a clinical doctorate. So clinical psychology doctorate Um, and the training pathway is different and our roles and responsibilities are different but we work really closely together so we'll usually have a very shared understanding of the patient and what they're suffering from but our approach will be different mine will be more focused on diagnosing assessing and treating the mental illness using medication and monitoring medication and the physical side of things as well Um, and theirs will be more focused on um, understanding them from a psychological perspective and using psychological therapies to treat them. So it's a really multidisciplinary way of working in our service. Um, and we have different roles and responsibilities, but they overlap somewhat as well. So, you know, in part of psychiatry training, we have, um, we learn about psychology, obviously, and we also have some training in psychological therapies, which we utilize in our patient encounters, but we don't do full psychotherapy um does any of that make sense <laughs> yeah it does it's it's it, thank you for explaining that it, it's it's like you said there are there's a lot of overlap there which i think which is what confuses people but i think you've explained it quite well in that uh, how how you do integrate and, and the differences i guess in in the training is is very different isn't it the backgrounds that you have so it's 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 interesting that there's two different approaches so there's treatment from from your side and then there's the, the, the psychological treatment as well and different therapies so this we're, we're talking about things like cbt and and those types of treatments that a psychologist would do? Yeah, exactly. So I'll use I'll utilize some CBT techniques as well, but I won't I won't do formal cognitive behavioral therapy, but psychologists will. And in my service, in psychosis service, the psychologists have special training in something called CBT for psychosis or CBTP. Um, and you know, they use utilize a whole range of other psychological approaches too. So um, things like compassion-focused therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, 
trauma-focused interventions. So a wide range of psychological therapies are on offer. Um, but the psychologists also really help us um, in the MDT, the multidisciplinary team, to understand our patients um, from a, a lifetime perspective, a psychological formulation of their current difficulties. And what you mentioned there from a biological and a psychological perspective is really key, actually, because in the MDT, we also have social workers, we have nurses, we have occupational therapists, we have support workers and peer support workers. So we have a really multidisciplinary team, which means that we can help people from what we call a biopsychosocial approach. You know, we also have IPS workers, which stands for individual placement and support, and they help people get back into education, training, employment, voluntary work. Um, so it's a really broad spectrum of things that we can help with. And that's one of the things that really drew me to psychiatry is the fact that we have such a holistic approach that we can help people in all aspects of their lives to improve their quality of life and live the best life possible, even despite their mental illness, which in some cases can be quite severe. Yeah. yeah thank you thank you for that explanation i think what what's i guess the, the common ground here is that psychologists and psychiatrists i mean the, the main yeah, area of focus here is, is mental health um and i wanted to talk a bit about that because i think um when we think of mental illness uh, again just as me growing up as a child you know uh, in the 80s and 90s mental illness for me i was you know when i watched movies and i saw you know uh, you see the uh, what's the what's the movie? Is it a shining where they're in you know in this home and people are getting you know put in straight jackets and all these sorts of there's this there's, oh, there is a little bit of stereotype I yeah. think or there has been in the in the past of of when you say mental health it's kind of you know this taboo subject. I mean, how how have you seen this area of mental health and understanding and awareness of it change? Because it certainly has changed in in, in a very short space of time, um, but there still are some of these these stereotypes that are associated with it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you think about films like One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest, which I think you might have been referring to. With the That's the one I was thinking of. Sorry, yeah. not The Shining. Yeah. yeah, same actor, though, isn't it? Jack Nicholson. But yeah, absolutely. I think the media has a lot to answer for, actually, in terms of the general public's understanding of, of mental illness. And films like that, really do create a lot of stereotypes, like you say, um, discrimination, stigma, and these problems still exist, unfortunately. Um, but like you say, things are getting better. And I think people are talking about mental health and mental illness much more readily now. And, you know, we've seen celebrities coming out and discussing their struggles with mental illness. Like David Harewood recently did that fabulous documentary for the BBC about his experience of psychosis when he was younger. Um, we've seen uh, Stephen Fry, Ruby Wax, you know, loads of people coming out and talking about their problems, Fern Cotton, uh, Bryony Gordon, the list goes on. And that really helps because it normalizes the conversation. It gets people to feel that, okay, maybe it's okay to talk about what I've been suffering from. I'm not a, I'm not unusual. It, this is something really common that affects a vast majority of the population. You know, the estimate is that one in four of us will suffer from a common mental illness at some point in our lives. And if you don't suffer directly, you sure as heck know somebody who does, a friend, a relative, a colleague. It's, it's, it's a massive problem. And, um, you know, it's, it comes from being human, doesn't it? But I think the media has a lot to answer for and stigma is a big problem. Um, but things are getting better slowly. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, the media is, is a, is a, plays a big part in society full stop and in, 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 you know, good, bad, indifferent. I think that's, that's definitely true for today. And yes, I think the normalization of this is, is hugely important. I think this is what we're seeing now, uh, with, with, as you mentioned, celebrities and, and people that we look up to coming forward and, 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 and just making people aware that, hey, this, and as you said, one in four people, uh, can be impacted by this, uh, for, for themselves in, in the course of their life. Uh, w what's interesting for me is that, these people that are coming forward talking about this, you know, other people may look at those people and say, well, they, they seem like they're okay. Then you know, I, I dare to say the word normal, but I, that's the only word I can think of right now, but you know, they, they don't seem like they have mental health problems or mental illnesses or psychosis. Is it something that some people can have a, you know, a, a small bout of a, a short period of their life and then kind of, they can go through the, the treatment and then they can be, uh, again, a, a, my choice of words is probably wrong here, but be cured or, or, or not experience any of the symptoms anymore? Or is it something that someone's always living with and managing? 
It really depends, actually. It depends on what the illness is um, and also the individual. So, for example, even psychosis, something as, as severe and debilitating as psychosis, which I haven't actually explained yet, but maybe we'll come on to that. Um, but even somebody who's had a first episode of psychosis, they may never have another episode again, or they may have relapsing and remitting symptoms. So they'll go through um, their life with occasional episodes of psychosis, or people might have chronic symptoms, um, which carry on and, and can be difficult to treat. So it really depends. And the same goes for depression and anxiety. Somebody might suffer from a depressive episode and, and never again. Um, and some people might have lifelong episodes of depression or chronic depression. So it, it just really depends on the person. Um, and what you said there was really interesting about how you might see somebody who's suffering from mental illness and have no idea. And that's that's so true. And that's one of the problems, actually, in, in terms of the stigma that, that exists, because they're invisible illnesses, aren't they? You, you can't tell by looking at someone. And this can perpetuate the, the issues. You know, I've heard stories of people who've been off sick from work with depression and they, their colleagues are talking about them behind their back, saying things like, oh, they're just skiving or they just want want some time off because they're lazy. And it's, it's a huge misunderstanding of what depression is or what an anxiety disorder is. Um, and they can be very, very debilitating very serious illnesses. Um, so I think stigma is something we need to keep addressing and it's something I'm really keen to talk about to, to help normalize and help people seek help because that's one of the problems actually is that a lot of mental illness goes untreated because people just don't seek help for it partly because of the stigma, their fear of discrimination, what people might say about them and also because I, I sometimes people don't realize that they're ill even. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the things I'm keen to promote. Please seek help. I think that's so important. It really is. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. That, that stigma is what does stop many people coming forward and, and talking about it and, and being open. And, or, or there's a, there's a, as you mentioned, there's a, a stereotype of how people would perceive it. You know, someone's off sick from work, you know, with a broken leg or a broken arm. It's like, okay, you know, that's fine. If someone's not coming to work because of mental health uh, problems, then we start to think about that person differently or look at that person differently and think, oh, yeah, as you mentioned, is it, is it, and I hear this a lot, you know, oh, it's just, it's just in your head, you know, it's, 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 it's nothing, you know, and it's, and it's like, well, if it's in my head, it's, it's, it doesn't mean it's not as serious as something that I can see or feel like a broken arm or a broken leg. And that's just not true. And I think recognizing you mentioned anxiety, depression, psychosis, and we'll definitely come on to talk about those. You know, these are the terms that we hear, but recognizing them as a, as a disease, you know, uh, as opposed to, you know, there's something wrong with that person's head there, you know, they have this, whatever the, 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 the stigmas are saying out there. I think it's, uh, it's really important to, to, to categorize them as that and treat them as you would, you know, a, another, another disease or another illness as well. Um, let's get on to talk about psychosis, anxiety, depression. Let, you know, as, as you were, I said, we haven't really defined it. So can we concisely define what we mean when we say psychosis? Yes, certainly. Um, so in short, psychosis is the experience of having experiences that other people don't have. <laughs> so um, the common symptoms of psychosis are delusions and hallucinations. And delusions are fixed false beliefs. And these can be things that are persecutory. So for example, people believe that other people mean to do them harm, or in somebody who's got bipolar affective disorder and they're having a manic episode with psychosis, they could be grandiose delusions. Um, so people might believe they've got special gifts or powers, or they're related to royalty, those kind of things. Um, in severe depression with psychosis, people might have nihilistic delusions, which is where they believe that um, they're losing things, even to the extent that bits of their body are rotting away or that they're already dead. So delusions are usually ununderstandable to other people. Um, and they're fixed and unshakable. And you can't persuade somebody that they're not true. Um, and then hallucinations are usually auditory. So people often hear voices 
They can also hear things like sounds, bells, um, knocks, taps, but but usually voices are, are what we would see. And in schizophrenia, those are usually horrible, derogatory, threatening, very unpleasant voices that people hear um talking about them and they can also experience command hallucinations where they hear voices telling them what to do or running commentary hallucinations where they hear people continuously commenting on what they're doing for example oh look at him he's cleaning his teeth now so that that can be very distressing as well um and those are the main symptoms, but there are a whole array of other experiences that people with psychosis have, and it can impact on their thoughts, their feelings, and their behaviors. So that's psychosis in a nutshell. Yeah, it's fascinating. Is there is there un- any understanding at the present time as to some of the causes of this? Because you know, hearing and and I guess the other the other thing that sprung to mind while you were talking there is the voices that you're referring to. Often people. Uh, we'll we'll do some self there's there's a little bit of self-talk so is it their own voices that they're hearing or is this is it a third party so sorry there's two there's kind of two questions let's tackle that last one first because you just spoke about it yeah the the voices is it their own voices or is it a, 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 a different voice no in in some instances people can hear their own thoughts being said out loud but oftentimes what they experience is other people it can be people they know and it can be people they do not know and it can be multiple different voices male and female talking about them and um, they're not their own voice and they're talking about things that they would not want to think really horrible terrible things and people can hear them from behind them, from the room next door, from above them, from down the road. The voices can come from anywhere in terms of how they perceive their location. Um, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, I, I was just, I, it's actually interesting because I was listening to a podcast recently. I can't remember which one it was now. I listened to so many. Uh, but they, they, they were talking on there about how um, self-talk and, and co- almost coaching yourself you know, and talking to yourself as if you are a third party and saying, come on, you know, it'd be like, come on, Sanjay, get up. You need to go for a run today. You know, you know, it's going to make you feel better. How that has now been proven to be very, very uh, an effective way to help someone to sort of motivate and get out there and do things or overcome anxiety. I think that's what the topic of this was. And, you know, again, I'm going back to a stereotype that I remember when I was a kid, and I'm, I'm sure it's still around now, is that, you know, talking to yourself is the first sign of madness. Um, so it, it, it's just... Uh, I'm, it was very refreshing to hear that absolutely that self that self talk because I, I catch myself doing that a lot you know it's like you know when I when I don't want to go to the gym or it's raining and I don't want to go for a run and it's like no come on you know you you know you you'll do it you'll feel better and and it, and it often works so yeah I certainly don't see the link between that and you know something as serious as, as psychosis which is why I wanted to make that distinction between is it always you know I don't want people to think and and that's st- I don't believe that stereotype is true by the way that you know talking to yourself is a, is a sign of of any issues um you're absolutely you're quite right and i do that self-talk all the time <laughs> sometimes in the supermarket i find myself talking to myself like charlotte where are the baked beans <laughs> and so yeah absolutely it's completely different and i heard that same podcast actually which is really interesting about how your self-talk can help to motivate you and help you overcome difficulties um and that's really really different from psychosis absolutely it, it, they are not the person's voice or thoughts they're external to them and they're unwanted they're very distressing and unpleasant yeah completely different thank you for pointing that out yeah no thanks thanks for that explanation so uh, i asked earlier about do we have any understanding about what the, the triggers or, the, or the, i guess the causes or the root causes we've, we've, we've addressed that word earlier what some of the root causes of psychosis and this, these serious conditions are is there any understanding at this point in time yeah the, the trouble is there's there's too much understanding but not enough <laughs> so there are it's so complicated and so multifactorial there's no one single answer to this question so there are a lot of theories and a lot of evidence for various different things that can impact on somebody's risk for developing psychosis um some of it is genetic but it is not as simple as saying there's a gene for psychosis they found something like 108 different genes that are implicated in psychosis um so that's not a very helpful explanation 
but genetics can play a part. And if you have a first degree relative with a psychotic illness, you're much more likely to also develop a psychotic illness. Um, there are theories about um, neurodevelopmental disorders being related to psychosis. Um, and there are theories about uh, maternal infection in pregnancy. There's an increased risk of psychosis for um, winter births. So people that are born in the winter and there are theories about viral, a viral infection in utero. But this, you know, we don't, we don't know. Um, there are also uh, socio-demographic problems. Um, so people from lower socio-economic demographics are more likely to suffer from psychosis, but we don't know whether this is because, well, is it cause or effect? That's, that's the point. Um, then there's, there's stress, um, hypothesis as well. So if people are, are put under a great deal of stress, that increases risk of psychosis. Um, it's, it's enormously complicated and multifactorial. Absolutely. We, we don't have a single answer for that. That makes, that makes perfect sense because we're dealing with, <clears throat> excuse me, we're dealing with a, an organ in the body that we fully don't really understand yet, which is the brain, right? I mean, this is one of the, the mysteries of, of, of human biology. So it, I guess that it means there could be different multifaceted approaches to this. You mentioned, you mentioned stress there. And I think this is one that people seem, seem to kind of link to or associate with more that, you know, we think of stress or we can, we understand maybe, uh, maybe, maybe certain pop areas understand stress more. So certainly, sh you know, somebody who's not had any genetic, um, links to psychosis can can they develop the these conditions through just you know chronic levels of stress in our life yeah i i've seen this i've seen this where people have been through an extremely stressful uh time and and it increases their their propensity to psychosis and and you know we have a, a diagnosis of stress induced psychosis um but but still, we're not sure of all the other risk factors that people may have that we don't understand. But stress can certainly precipitate a, a serious episode of of mental illness. Um, yeah, it's it's hugely complicated. One thing I didn't mention that I should is the risk um, of of substances. For example, cannabis increasing people's risk of psychosis as well. Um, so that's one thing to mention. And also the dopamine hypothesis, the dopamine neurotransmitter in the brain. Um, and that's, that's another thing. We don't know why people would have, um, have this problem, but, but the medication that, that helps with psychosis tends to be blocking dopamine receptors and, so that's one other hypothesis. So terribly complicated, but yeah, stress, substances, genetics, all sorts of things can influence our risk of psychosis. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. I'm sure we'll, we'll learn more as we, uh, yeah, as, as as time goes on. Can we just touch on stress for a moment? Because I think that's again, I said that's something that's quite common, and, and it's been talked about a lot. You're, you're, I'm, re I'm hearing and seeing a lot more in, in the media and, and the news about stress, particularly given the year that we've all just been through with with, with COVID nineteen. Um, what would be quite good useful is just to help people understand and define what we mean when we talk about stress and, and what it is. Um, what 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 is stress how do how do we how do we define this yeah interesting question um and actually i listened to your first podcast which was all about stress and that was really brilliant so if people haven't heard that yet i'd recommend go back and listen to that um well stress is something that we all experience isn't it and you wouldn't want to not experience stress because in many circumstances it can be very beneficial um for example, if you've got a big presentation to do, a little bit of stress helps because you have a deadline and you need to meet it and you want to do your best. So the stress primes you to, to work really hard and do your best for the presentation or the interview or whatever it may be. So stress is helpful and it can be protective and it protects us from fearful or dangerous situations. Um, the problem with stress is when it becomes chronic and we adapt to it or rather we stop being able to be unstressed, if that makes sense. So if you think about the olden days when we lived lived in the plains of Africa, for example, and you'd be sitting down having dinner with your family, and then you'd see a, a tiger coming towards you, 
The stress response would cause your adrenaline, your cortisol to go up. You'd be primed, ready to run or to fight the tiger. So your fight or flight response. Um, and that response is really adaptive and really protective. It makes you escape the danger. And then once the tiger is gone and, and you're safe, you can relax again and get back into your rest and digest mode. You can finish your food and you can go to sleep. Um, and that's really productive adaptive stress but it stops being adaptive when the stress is so chronic and ongoing that you just can't get back into rest and digest mode and this increases our risk of developing um, stress-related problems which can be physical or mental um, so we know that chronic stress increases our risk for cardiovascular disease it increases our risk for developing type 2 diabetes it increases our risk for depression anxiety disorders um, and also post-traumatic stress disorder, which we haven't talked about, um, which which is uh, it's one of the anxiety disorders. Uh, so, yeah, stress is something that we, we really do need to learn to manage. And we have very stressful lives in the 21st century, and particularly over the past year, as you say, where we've all had the same the same experience of, uh, well, different experiences of the same very stressful thing. Yeah, I want to. I want to talk about you know this stress in terms of because I think what I what I've heard a lot is people you know they they think about stress and say oh you know is there any stress and you know people people's off, approach often is well yes there's stress you know as you mentioned life is stressful but I can't do anything about it because I don't have control over the virus or I don't have control over my neighbour who's playing loud music or whatever the stressor might may be so. There is this, this again, this this uh, understanding or misunderstanding that it's something that we can't control. I wanted just to go back before going go on to that. Something you mentioned in your definition of stress, in that, in you know, back in when the, the tiger analogy, the 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 stress is short lived, right? So when you talk about chronic stress, you mentioned it's just there all the time. But in in these in this fight or flight scenario, that stress is shows so short lived that the response that we get that you mentioned the adrenaline, the cortisol, uh, and there are other things that happen as well. Heart rate goes up, you know, sweat production, you know, muscle tension, glucose production goes up. Um, these these responses they're designed to actually help us in that moment to deal with the stress so if we're thinking you know i like i love that the, the hunt being hunted analogy because if you're being if you're about to you know go into a fight with a tiger or a bear or, or run away from one either which is probably the smart option here um you know you want you want a higher heart rate you want more blood flow to your muscles you want more oxygen and glucose getting into your muscles you you know you want to be able to have these things so you can perform the function of whatever you're going to be doing but once it's over it's over and everything goes back down now, when we're going through our day-to-day -day lives in, in the modern world, if the stress the stress is just constant, right? There could be you know an email, a text message, a phone call, a meeting, you know, a, a child being sick, and whatever it might be. This the stress is just constant, and it's never going away. But in those moments, that extra heart, that increase in heart rate, the extra blood flow, the extra glucose may not be serving us it may not be helping us in that moment because what the, the stressor isn't something as physical as a, as a lion or a tiger chasing you um so i think this, this is this is where the i guess where stress becomes harmful because of this risk this physiological response that's that taking place in us regardless of whether we're faced with a tiger or we're reading an email is that is that fair to say it, that's exactly it exactly so yeah there's nothing you can do with the physiological response that happens in response to the stresses that we have in the 21st century exactly um but that is why physical activity is so helpful for stress because it allows you to burn those things off you know the muscles are primed the heart rate the breathing and exercise allows you to to use that physiological response in an adaptive way. And it's almost as though you have run away from the tiger, even though you're running away from your emails, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's, again, it's no accident, isn't it? And I remember when I, before I worked in the health space, I worked in, in a corporate world and yeah, I'd have a stressful day at work, you know, and I'd go to the gym and I'd feel great. Yeah, and and I never I just thought oh, you know I just feel good and I didn't understand what it was there but it's not that's not an accident is it I think and even and and even if we take it back to something very very simple going to the gym might be extreme for some people but going for a walk you know often someone goes for a walk 
and afterwards say, oh, how was the walk? Very rarely do I hear, oh, the walk was terrible. So I was like, oh, yeah, actually, it was, it was quite nice. I feel good. And that feeling of feeling good, that's not an accident. There's actually this physiology, phys- physiology or biology at work here that's helping all those markers come down, all the stress hormones come down, and potentially there's an increase in the, in the feel-good hormones, which are, you, know, you mentioned dopamine, endorphins, these types of things. So um, it's absolutely not an accident when that happens. And yeah, I, I love the idea of using physical activity as, a, as an outlet for stress. Yeah, exactly. I think we need to remember that we're just biological organisms. We're, we're a process running on, on neurochemicals and hormones, and we don't have as much control over our brains as we think we do. So yeah, we need to use our biology to our advantage. Yeah. I want to touch on some of the other things we can do. We mentioned physical activity, but I'm just going to hold that thought. Just staying on this topic of stress um, and modern and the modern day, um, what role has has technology played in 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 our in our stressful lives? Because for me, it's yeah, I can clearly see there's a, there's a link here. But do you have an, a, an opinion on on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not a technology expert, but I think it has a lot of advantages, but also a lot of disadvantages. You know, it's so difficult nowadays to switch off from things like news, um, opinions on social media, uh, family pressures, emails from work. It's just constant, constant, constant. And you have to make a really conscious effort to put the tech away, put your phone down, stop checking your emails, stop scrolling Instagram, don't look at the news. Um, so it's, it's difficult to avoid these days. And I think for particularly for young people who are growing up with the technology, you know, you mentioned growing up in the 80, 80s and 90s, so did I, and we didn't have any of this when we were young. So our lives were simpler, you know, we'd leave school and, and that would be it. And, you know, the news was on at, at 6pm and 10pm, and you could choose whether to watch it or not. But it didn't follow you everywhere you went. Um, and nowadays, it's just so hard to get away from the technology that it can cause problems. And for young people growing up with it, they've got a lot of pressure through social media that can influence their self-esteem, their self-confidence. Um, and, you know, there's cyberbullying. So those are all huge problems. Um, also, there's the problem of too much blue light exposure from phones that interferes with sleep. So young people and, and older people not putting their phones down before bed. So often in bed, scrolling, 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 and then wondering why they can't get to sleep. But the blue light is just keeping them awake. Um, so I think there are there are lots of problems, but also advantages. And uh, if you look at the past year with covid Technology has been the one thing that's been really positive, actually, to help us keep in contact with friends and family that we would not have been able to see otherwise, and also to enable us to work remotely from home. You know, I've done a lot of my patient consultations over the past year virtually over um, the, over the internet, and it's it's allowed us to carry on with all of those kind of social and work related things but yeah certainly got disadvantages and is likely to be contributing to stress a great deal yes i think that what you mentioned there about the news is 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 something that i i got i remember years ago i remember thinking this as well and uh, i've recently had a lot more people talking about it i, I remember wrong and Chachi's recent podcast he was he was talking about it as well i think when it comes to these responses that we mentioned with stress it's not always something you can feel right so a good a good analogy here would be if there was a if there were two pathways and one pathway was littered with nails and glass and you took that pathway well it would hurt and you would bleed or whatever would happen and you probably wouldn't choose that pathway because you all oh, that that's that happens when it comes to the stress and you take the pathway with that which doesn't have the glass whereas if you're watching just watching tv for example the news comes on well when the news comes on first of all uh, it's that's very rarely any good news on the news and that's that's the, the first problem um and secondly, when you're seeing, you know, images or, or audio and you're seeing what's happening in the world, you know, it's creating this stress response inside of you. You know, you're, you're watching the news and you go, oh my God, isn't this terrible what's happening in the world? And, you know, that's what you may be talking to your partner about. And you think, okay, this is, this is harm, this is harmless, but everything we mentioned, heart rate going up, you know, stress levels going up, all of that, that's happening inside of you at that moment in time. You just don't recognize it. So 
I think once we can start to become aware of this and say, okay, well, yeah, this this response is happening. Am I am I exposed to these negative messages more often than not throughout my day? And there's there's a there's a there's a first step we can do is maybe just expose ourselves less to these to these. Uh, to these triggers and technology definitely c- comes into that as you mentioned social media and obviously we have this uh, i guess a, a, non- a problem at the moment with with young people and, and bullying online so there's obviously a big element there but yeah at the same time technology has saved a lot of people as well you know i mean i wanted to start a meditation practice and and the only thing that really got me into a regular practice was my phone, you know, using an app on my phone. Um, so I guess, yeah, you have to look at it in, in both ways. And certainly the last year has been an example of how we've, how we've been able to utilize and engage technology. And I think there's going to be a lot of positives that come out of this, this, this pandemic that are going to help us in the future. Um, but certainly we have to be mindful of this, this, this impact of stress as well. Yes, exactly. And that's the key, isn't it? Is, is being mindful of the impact that things are having on you. Yeah, for sure. I remember very much the last time I watched the 10 o'clock news was probably about six years ago now, maybe five. Um, and it was about the horrible events in, in Syria. And I was watching it kind of just weeping for half an hour. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't watch the news anymore. <laughs> this is too much. Yeah, yeah, and and unfortunately, in this in this last twelve months, certainly the early part of the pandemic, I think that's all everyone was doing. And I I, can't, I caught myself from like you, I stopped watching the news, you know, that regularly, you know, many many years ago. And then suddenly this this happened, and I was like, oh, this sounds like something I need to be I need to be aware of. And then suddenly every you know every minute of my day, I'm like, oh, what's going on now? You know, so yeah, it can it can run away with us. So we just have to become aware. And I think if we do become aware. Uh, we have to become aware without any judgment and say, oh, okay, look, I'm doing this and not to say, oh, this is bad or I'm doing what I'm doing is wrong. So, okay, well, become aware of it. And then what can I do to, 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 to do, can I do something different or what else can I do to, to change it? I think that's important not to, not to, to have a little bit of self-compassion here as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, what you said before about not being able to manage our environment necessarily. So not being able to escape from stress but learning what works for us in terms of helping us to manage the stress is really important as well absolutely let's that's exactly what i wanted to come on to talk about so let's 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 get into that so um what can we do so stress is here there's there's lots of you know life as you mentioned life is stressful so the uh, from my perspective you can't you can't control we can't control the stress we cannot always get rid of the stress so what is it that we we can do Yeah. So I think there are lots and lots of things that we can do and different things will work for different people. So it's, it's good to spend a bit of time figuring out what works for you. Um, for me personally, physical activity, definitely time in nature, definitely. And things like yoga and meditation are really, really helpful for me as well. Um, for other people, it might be doing something really creative, um, painting, or, you know, figure out what it is for you. But there are things through lifestyle medicine that are evidence-based as well. So if you think about the six pillars of lifestyle medicine, um, which include uh, nutrition, physical activity, sleep, um, positive psychology, social connectedness, avoiding substances, um, those are all things that we can find evidence for that help our stress responses. So good quality nutrition is really key. And people um, often recommend the Mediterranean style diet for optimal brain health and optimal physical health as well. So what does that mean? That means a diet that's rich in fruit, veg, nuts, seeds, legumes. Um, It may have some fish, some meat. So it's not a restrictive diet, but the point is that it's very rich in um vegetables and legumes Um, and that's really important for brain health but also it reduces your risk of cardiovascular disease uh, etc and diabetes and avoiding processed foods which are often pro-inflammatory so too much saturated fat too much fried food um, too much ultra processed food high in sugar um, and uh, sweeteners those kind of things can be pro-inflammatory and can increase our vulnerability to stress and depression and physical health problems too. So that's nutrition. Um, Physical activity, we've already talked about a little bit in in how it can help you manage your physiological stress responses. But there's also a lot of evidence to show that 
regular physical activity increases your good hormones, like you mentioned, dopamine, serotonin, feel-good hormones, also oxytocin, endorphins, um, which make you feel good, boost your happiness levels and your well-being, um, but also increase the volume of the hippocampus in the brain. Um, and there's evidence to show that regular exercise increases brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, which can actually help us grow new neurons in our hippocampus, which is the area of the brain that's involved in learning and memory, but also um, helps with mood and emotion too. And exercise can help us um, strengthen the connection between the prefrontal cortex and our limbic areas. And our limbic areas of our brain are our lizard brain. There are emotional response parts of our brain and then the prefrontal cortex is the bit that helps us make sense of all of those emotional responses so it can really improve the way that you manage your emotions and manage stress um, so physical activity is super important managing your sleep prioritizing that and doing things that help you get a really good night's sleep for example, avoiding caffeine and alcohol too close to bedtime or actually even avoiding caffeine in the afternoon because it has such a long half-life, um, avoiding blue light exposure from screens at least an hour before bed, making sure your room is cool and dark so your body can cool itself and fall asleep naturally, um, getting daylight in in the morning and the afternoon, which helps with uh, melatonin, the sleep hormone, so optimizing sleep is really important. Going to bed at the same kind of time every night and waking up at the same time, same kind of time every morning can really help. And when we are rested and we've slept well, that can help us manage stress during the day and help us manage our emotions. We're much more um, calm and able to cope with things. Um, positive psychology and connectedness are really important for managing stress as well. So things like gratitude practices, um, it could be as simple as just writing down two or three things every day that you're grateful for. And I do this and I find that it's it's a really nice practice because it helps you notice small things every day that you're thankful for. Um, and it changes the whole way you look at what's important to you in your life. So gratitude practices, connectedness, spending time with other people, your social support network, um, and also the importance of physical a human touch and a physical connection with other people, which um, really helps us boost our oxytocin levels um, for feeling good, well-being, confidence, and all of those good things. Um, avoiding risky substances, so tobacco, alcohol, cannabis, other drugs that can affect the way we feel, affect the way we think, and manage stress, really important as well. And for me, nature, spending time in nature is really important for managing stress, helps you put things into perspective and also has a direct biological effect on your body and your brain as well. Um, and I think probably that's another topic that would, that would take a long time to talk about, but I'd recommend everybody get outside every day if possible. I, I think the nature one is... It's fascinating for me because, it, you know, I think it's no accident. Again, when somebody, you know, even if you, look, even if you just, if I showed someone an image of, I don't know, a beautiful meadow with sheep and a sunny day and flowers and trees and birds, I think most people, maybe it's a beach, you know, again, whatever takes your fancy. It's no, it's no surprise that when you see that, or if you're actually there, that you feel wow, what a view, how, how nice is that? And you just feel this sense of calm and this sense of, I, I do anyway, I, I know that I'm, I'm a big, big fan of nature. I've, I've even you know, moved out to the country from being a Londoner because of that. And, you know, I do feel this sense of calm when I just go for a walk in a field. And there is just this innate connection that we have with nature. And I'm, I'm, I don't know the facts on this, I don't know the science, but I'm, my intuition tells me that it's coming back to how we were, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago when we we had this connection with nature we grew up in nature we lived in nature so i think that one just just that one thing and it's often something i 
say to, and I've said to a lot of people in this time, in this lockdown period is that, yes, we're not able to go out, but if you have an outdoor space, if you have a garden, a balcony, even your front door, just, just stand out there for a few minutes a day rather than being indoors. And that just that alone has made a, a, a big difference. I know for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's evidence-based as well. You know, spending time surrounded by greenery um, has been shown to reduce our blood pressure by two millimetres of mercury just by being in nature. Um, they've shown that, like you say, just even looking at images of nature um, helps us to feel calm and relaxed and reduces our stress response. Um, you know, there's a, a quite a, bit, a lot of evidence coming out from um, the idea of shinrin-yoku or forest bathing that that is a Japanese practice of spending time just surrounded by a forest. And they've started to find that it can influence um, our immune function. It affects our natural killer cell numbers in our immune system. It um, reduces cortisol, reduces adrenaline. Um, so it has a physiological response on us just being in nature. And like you say, we mustn't forget that we're animals after all, you know, we're, we're supposed to be in nature. And I think it's very difficult for a lot of people who are in urban areas, you know, high rise flats, um, built environments, concrete jungles, where they don't have a lot of access to nature. That's very difficult. Um, but you know, in the UK, our cities have lots of green spaces that we can seek out. There are parks and canals, you know, things that we can do to find those things. And even if you can't get out into nature, doing things like you describe, having images of nature um, or pot plants, you know, potted herbs, things like that can even make a difference. So I think it's really important to, to surround yourself with as much nature as possible. Yeah, I mean, I've even got, gone to the extent of, you know, having fake plants in my office because, you know, I'm just a little bit too lazy to manage them. But that for me, just so I can, it's just that color and, and that, 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 that vibrance. And yeah, that for me has just, I, again, I feel like it's made a difference. I haven't, again, I haven't measured this in any way, but yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to address that because people do live in inner cities and, and, and it's, you don't always have access to, to nature. So if you can create some, some form of your own nature inside and it doesn't, and it doesn't have to cost a lot, you know, absolutely. I think that's going to have a, a huge impact on people and yeah you mentioned we're mammals we're animals and so this is just the way you, you know uh, the animal kingdom has, has, has gone and i always say you know i mean, of course we've evolved but if you look at the rest of the animal kingdom they're still doing what they've always done right it's us that have, have changed our ways and, and through evolution so animals are still doing things and they're still thriving of course apart from things like deforestation and, and environmental you know concerns i said again a completely different podcast to, to, to discuss but yeah, we are animals. And if we, some of the other things you mentioned there previously, when we were talking about some of the, what we can do about stress, you mentioned food. And I think that's also another important aspect because often you mentioned some of those refined foods and you know, high sugars and processed foods. Those foods, often people don't link that with creating stress because they think, well, when I eat this, I don't feel stressed. I feel great. Um, whereas that's not necessarily a, a reflection of, of stress, but the foods and the inflammatory foods, as you mentioned, that's causing stress inside the body which of course manifests itself in those in those biological responses so there's a there's a big part to play with food and then physical activity in the brain you know I've, I've been fascinated with this area of of neurogenesis that you know is showing us now that you can actually you know grow new new neurons in your brain brain cells brain cells and create new connections which at once we thought once the brain developed that's it it doesn't really go anywhere but we're seeing that we can actually change the structure of our brains which is which again is just absolutely fascinating exactly it's so exciting yeah i love i love all of this stuff <laughs> so yeah i can tell absolutely and so do <laughs> I, and I think it's just it just it just makes us makes me want to know more and then what else can I do and, and how else can I and, I and I use this information so absolutely there's lots uh, lots there and you've already mentioned actually one of the questions I was going to ask you but you kind of mentioned some of the things that you do in your own life so you mentioned walking walking in nature uh, what else is it that you try to to what other healthy habits do you try to incorporate into your own life <laughs> well, I'm a bit of a health freak, so <laughs> um, you know, we're not perfect, and 
but yeah, I think health is something I've been really interested in for a long time and improving health to avoid disease is really important to me. So yeah, I eat really well. Um, I do have a Mediterranean style diet, but not, not restrictive. I eat some meat, I eat fish, I eat dairy, but predominantly fruit, veg, whole grain, um, olive oil. I avoid processed food, um, but occasionally I'll have a burger, you know, I'm, I'm a human being as well, but it's about balance, I think. And, and, you know, there's an 80-20 rule, which says that 80% of the time, if you're doing the healthy things, a little bit of the unhealthy stuff isn't going to do you too much harm. So that's kind of the rule I live by. Um, and yeah, so eating well, moving regularly, I, I move every day, I need it, I feel... Um, yeah, what's the word? Unbalanced. If I don't, you know, I feel the stress building up. I feel muscular tension in my shoulders. I notice I'm not breathing deeply. I need to move my body. So walking, running, yoga, really important for me. Um, I love yoga and meditation as well for helping manage stress. But sometimes if you're too stressed, you just can't, you can't focus on yoga or meditation. You need to do something more active, like go for a run to burn off that adrenaline and cortisol before you can do the, the quieter practices. Um, I love my gratitude journal that I write in every night. And that's something I, I set myself as an experiment for a week a couple of years ago. I thought, okay, I'll try this for a week. And I, I did it for a week and I, I can't stop doing it because it benefits me so much. I find that really important. Um, spending time with friends and family is very important. And also purpose and meaning. So doing things that matter to me um so my job is really important to me looking after my patients is super important and um following my passions really very um very important to have purpose and meaning in life yeah i think that's that's a big one isn't it i think i think you're fortunate i'm fortunate as well that i you know land in a place where i am following something that i'm passionate and and something that i built believe you know really believe in and i think that makes a huge difference um, and look, not everyone is fortunate enough to, to, to have found that. And I think that's where it's really important to have these other practices that you've very, you know, concisely and very uh, expertly explained to people what they can do and having those. And I think some of the things you mentioned there before about being creative and all these other things, and, and I, I guess we're talking about having hobbies here. And, and often what an obstacle there is when we talk about hey, find something that you like to do and it's like well I don't have time and it's that you know I don't have time to do these things and I think it's and often it's because people the time that they do have they're they're spending they're using it for the benefit of others right so often people say I don't have time because I'm I've got kids Sanjay and I've got a work and I've got a boss and I've got a husband and I've got parents to look after and maybe I'm caring for my neighbor as well and and all the time is going into the to, to the in, in the investment of others however I often just think well how are you going to, how am I, I, I ask, I say this to myself, how am I going to be the best father, the best husband, the best coach, the best podcaster that I can be if I'm not the best version of myself? So finding some time to, for me, it's like you, it's exercise, it's getting out in nature, it's uh, listening to music is another one that I really love to do. Finding that time, it's not selfish, it's self-preservation. Um, and, and I think that is so important. And again, it's, having that self-compassion and go, no, actually I need this. I, I need this so that I can be there for others and, and be a better whoever it is that you want to be. Yeah, exactly. We have to look after ourselves in order to be able to look after anybody else. It's like that aeroplane analogy, isn't it? Where yes. they're giving you the advice that if the, if those oxygen masks come down, put your own mask on first before you can put anybody else's on. Because if you are not you're, you're in your tip top shape, you can't look after anybody else. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, and I love the 80-20 rule. Again, I use a saying which I say, you know, you you are what you do most of the time, not what you do some of the time. And I think it's important to to have that 20%. You mentioned not having a restrictive diet and you know, having a burger, and that's absolutely fine. I think when we start to, uh, just from my experience and what I've seen, when we start to eliminate um food groups or certain types of food from our diet completely like it's a zero percent zero sorry 100 percent not having it it just becomes a battle of willpower and you know no matter how strong your willpower is at some point it will crack so just allowing that 20 percent in is is gonna is gonna really really benefit you so um yeah thank you for, for, for that um charlotte thank you very much for 
your time today. You've been really, yeah, really insightful. Um, talked about some very important and, and delicate topics, which I think will help a lot of people out there. How can people find out more about what you're doing, what you're up to? Um, yeah, just tell us where we can find you. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Sanjay. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, to find me, the best place is probably on Instagram, where I am at the lifestyle psychiatrist, um, because that's where I mostly put put things that are inspiring me in the hope to inspire other people. I put a lot of nature content on there, and um, you know uh, things from research studies that I've read that are interesting. Um, so that's probably the main place. Um, I also have a website which is. Uh, the lifestyle psychiatrist.co.uk. Um, and yeah, please contact me if you'd like to talk more about any of these things. I love talking about it, as you might be able to tell. And um, also, if you know, if you'd like to work with me in any kind of way, I'm always open to exciting ideas. Great. Thank you. And uh, yeah, definitely go and check out uh, Charlotte's Instagram. I think there's some really good good content on there. And uh, I certainly would, yeah, I, I'd love to have another conversation with you and maybe di- deep diaper into one of the topics we talked about today. I think, yeah, like you, I'm fascinated by this stuff. And it just, just, just talking about it makes me uh, learning and learning. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to do that. So again, thank you very much for your time and uh, look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you thank you to this week's guest for their time and insights it was a real pleasure speaking to them all the social media and website links for today's guest can be found on the show notes page on our website which is www.stayhole.co.uk forward slash swp if you enjoyed this podcast then please share it with someone that you think might benefit from it I would also be very grateful if you could visit Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and leave me a review. It will really help this information reach more and more people. Thank you. And if you're a health, fitness or wellness professional and you want to be a guest on the show or you have your own personal health and wellness journey that you want to share, then contact me via email. It's sunjay at stayhole.co.uk. That's S-U-N-J-A-Y at stayhole.co.uk you can get me on instagram or twitter it's at stayhole life or on facebook.com forward slash stayhole i would love to hear from you thank you to purple planet for all the music in this episode and as always thank you to you for listening i am forever grateful and remember to stay whole